Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Glorious Disruption is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's Word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by Him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Well, it's good to be at Waterbrook. It's good to worship with you. I love Gabe, and it is a privilege to have known him for these many years and now uh, to be with you to worship today, Gabe. Thanks. Last week, Pastor John looked at this passage where Jesus' authority was questioned. And that was in Luke chapter 20, the first half of the chapter. And as John walked through this passage, the question that he wanted us to think about is, do we want Jesus? I don't think there's any more disruptive question than that. Who's at the center of your life and who is your greatest desire? Well, anyone who wants Christ can have him. We are both distracted by the world and by religion. And because of that, everyone at a fundamental level is distracted from Jesus. We don't want him until God does something. In other words, our will always follows our wants. But our wanter is broken until God fixes us and gives us right desires. And so today we're following up on that same question, do we want Jesus, as we look at this text. What I'm going to suggest today is that this text is a means that God wants to use in my life and in yours to give us the desire we need for the one who loves us. We long for heroes, and we long for heroes who have integrity. At the core, although we don't always recognize it, this is truly a longing for Jesus, even if sometimes our longing, our desires are misplaced. It's fundamentally Jesus we want. He's the hero that our hearts long for. Luke, in his gospel, shows us many examples of integrity. Nobodies, in quotes, like Mary and Joseph, who showed integrity in the face of severe testing. Or the wealthy, like the wise men, who had the integrity of following a 400-year-old prophecy through Daniel, who had been the instructor of the wise men centuries before. They followed him to seek Jesus. Prophets like John the Baptist who kept their integrity in both life and in death. Even Gentiles like the centurion who had the integrity of faith, the healing of a servant. But not all in Luke's gospel are heroes of integrity. Integrity has always been a rare jewel. Actually, most people in Luke's account failed in just this point of integrity. The crowds, they and we, 
are too easily satisfied with mere food. The Samaritan village, who as a whole dismissed Jesus in Luke's account. Cities of Chorazon, Bethsaida, Jerusalem. Nine out of ten of the lepers, and of course Herod, all of them, rejected him. And in rejecting him and wanting something else, they rejected integrity. The list goes on. Top of the list. The people who are going to be most in Luke's sights today are the scribes and the chief priests, the same crew that had been there last week. We grow, I grow, weary and thirsty in a dry and dusty desert in our world where integrity seems like a mirage. Sometimes we get close. It completely goes away. Where can we find what our hearts long for. That is fundamental to Luke as he presents his story. What makes Jesus in Luke clearly a man who has integrity? First, he determines what he's done according to wisdom. Second, he declares what he will do. And third, he does it. This is a Jesus that the crowds followed, forsaking the leaders of their day. I don't say all of them followed him, truly wanting what he offered. But just, just the idea that there's someone who really does that in the middle of our world is worth taking a vacation and following him around. Jesus determined, understood by spirit and word, that he was the one appointed by God and was God who would die as predicted in the scriptures and rise again. And then he declared it. Jesus announced this at least three times in the Gospel of Luke to his disciples. And then he did it. Luke 18, for the third time, Jesus tells his disciples this is what's going to happen and now he heads toward Jerusalem where he will die. And we're seeing him on that path today. And what we're going to see is that the very integrity that Jesus has and has been demonstrating, Luke has crafted the story, taking out 1% of 1% of 1% of the events in Jesus' life. Crafting it so that we would see what shines so clearly. He is integrity. And hypocrisy hates integrity. In wisdom, people of integrity often avoid fools. We see that in the book of Proverbs. There's nothing that fools and hypocrisy has in common with integrity. And, and really, interestingly, nothing integrity can offer hypocrisy. Not while it remains hypocrisy. In fact, even worse, integrity is kryptonite to hypocrisy. In the face of all, when integrity stands, hypocrisy melts. That's what's happening in this story that Luke is presenting for us as Jesus prepares to face the cross. He arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the week, our Sunday, triumphal entry. Now in the days between Sunday and Passover, the religious leaders 
have to tear him down. I think they want to prove. Jesus, you're no better than we are. That, that has to be clearly seen by all the people, and really, they're trying to reinforce it for themselves. In our day, <laughs> we have seen, lived through, faced too many integrity mirages, many of them in the church. And then they collapse. Jesus will never collapse. Today, I want us to see him, and I want my heart and yours to latch on to him even more than you have before. Father, as we come before this text, we could be bored or we could be entertained by learning something, neither of which will be very useful. I pray out of my need that we will see Jesus and say yes again. That the need that we have for a hero will be deeply satisfied one more time. Not satisfied so that we'll never want more. Actually, in biblical satisfaction, that when we're satisfied, we want even more. May that be so today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I want you to look at the end of the text that was just read for us. That last verse, 26, the last part, your Bibles are open, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. That's what I want us to do today. Now, they became silent in grief. We lost. But marveling, that was right. And today, I hope, really, that you have one of those answers. Even marveling, either marveling at him in joy, or if that's where you are, probably the best place you could go is marvel at him in frustration. I mean, to be honestly frustrated with Jesus is a pretty good step rather than not caring. One of those two today. Christians, therefore, my primary goal for you is to show you Jesus. I can't do that. My God, may this text, may the Spirit. I want us to delight in Jesus. He is our righteousness. He defeats hypocrisy. He goes alone into battle seemingly against a powerful enemy who is about to eat him alive. Yet in the battle, he is the victor, and he's ours. He's the one that loves me. He knows my name, and he's winning. I want us to marvel. If you're not yet a Christian and you're here today, I want to tell you Jesus is actually the leader you have always wanted. And if you're honest with yourself, you have always wanted that person you could marvel at who wouldn't disappoint you. Here he is. Three ideas. The first idea is this. Hypocrisy attacks integrity. Would you look at verses 19 and 20? I'm going to read these again. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable. This is the one that John taught last week. Was against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him. They sent spies who pretended to be sincere. 
that they might catch him in something that he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Notice the connection between these two events, the vineyard and the taxes. Last week displayed Jesus' authority through this parable of the vineyard, and interestingly, the editors of the ESV that I use, I'm not sure which one you have, but for me, this verse 19, which seems like a summary of what just happened, is actually in the next paragraph. I think they're being wise. They're connecting these two events. They're showing that out of the frustration that they had in this first event, they're wounded and they're regathering and they're coming back for another attack. They needed something. They needed to tear him down. In a sense, it wasn't even a win. They weren't trying to exalt themselves not in a direct way. They were trying to change the playing field so as low as they were, everybody else was lower. So they needed a new approach. They needed a trap. Surely they, they could, yes, they could trap him. They sent spies to watch him, which makes no sense to me. Why do you need a spy for a guy who's doing everything in public? But in their brain, maybe overfried and overwrought, they were hoping Jesus was not so bright, that he wouldn't recognize this is a trap. Oh, I know. We'll send people he's not familiar with. Instead of us, we'll send somebody else. He'll let his guard down. Problem was, Jesus didn't have his guard up. Problem is, Jesus was just standing there being Jesus. By the Holy Spirit, there's no guard. He is who he is. There's no fake front. The word here that we get in the translation, it's a good one, but I want to tell you the word that was used by Luke. It says they pretended to be sincere. It's real easy in Greek. Hypocrite. That's our transliteration. We know that word. They're putting up a false front. They're pretending to be on God's team, but they're not playing for that team. What drives them to lay a trap? To catch him in something he said? Why not? I mean, Think about this. I mean, you've read the Bible too often. Just ask, why not enjoy him? Why not surrender to Jesus? What keeps them from doing that? The text doesn't say explicitly. But if your life is about yourself and you're pretending your life is about God if you're in a position of holding up this shell out here and you're behind it, you're going to be just driven always to attack integrity because it's coming after you. Here's how Jesus described it in the Gospel of John. In John 3, he said, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. 
But men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil, so they would not come into the light, lest their evil deeds be exposed. Peter 2. For they think it strange that you do not join in with them into the same flood of dissipation, so they heap abuse upon you. Hypocrisy can make no sense of integrity because they don't believe in it. The assumption of hypocrisy is that, well, everybody's like me putting up a false front. To say they didn't believe in Jesus, really, it's not that they didn't believe in God. I mean, you feel that, not just understand that. They believed in God. But their God, on their terms. This happened to Daniel. Um, He was in Babylon. This is hundreds of years before Jesus came. Daniel was a man of integrity. He held high office, one of the top offices in the land. He actually survived through several administrations, staying as one of the top guys. Those who were around him at this time thought that they would find a way to tear him down because they were tired of him being in charge and them being in his shadow. They had to tear him down. They began a research of his life to find some dirt on him. They had to settle because they couldn't find it. It shocked them for making something perfectly legal, praying to God, illegal. That way they could place Daniel in a bind. Here's the bind. You're going to be in a bind between serving your God and serving your king. Then we've got you. So they forced, in quotes, the king of Persia to send a law that says, for 30 days, no praying to anyone but me. Of course, we know, maybe even when you read the story the first time, what's going to happen. Daniel's a man of integrity. He not only prayed that day, but he prayed with the windows open, as he always had, facing Jerusalem so all could see. He had discerned in wisdom what was good. He had declared what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray every day. He declared that just by doing it and doing it visibly. And even after the law was passed, Nothing changed for Daniel. So he did what he had discerned and declared. They knew he would. And on that basis, they had him thrown into the lion's den. It's worth noting the difference in integrity between Daniel and the king of Persia. The king determined what he would do when he signed that decree. No praying for 30 days. Determining isn't enough. You've got to determine in wisdom. Not much wisdom in what the king did. You've got to wonder why he signed that thing so quickly. And though he declared he would do it, and though he did what he declared, if you've read the story recently, you remember he was grieved. In a way, he was trying to act with integrity. He discerned, he declared, he did. Daniel went in the lion's den. And yet, he knew what he was doing was wrong and he couldn't get out of it. The reason was, He didn't discern in wisdom right back at the beginning. So also Daniel's political detractors lacked integrity. They determined what they would do, and in a sense they determined in wisdom it was consistent with their goals, but they discerned according to evil. We're going to go after God's man. 
They declared what they would do, but you know, they had a false front when they told the king what this thing was about. They kind of declared, O king, nobody prays except you for 30 days, but they didn't tell why. So they were false in their declaring, and they did what they said. But there was no integrity because of evil discernment and deceptive declaration. Hypocrisy must tear down integrity because they don't believe in it. It gives the lie to what they're doing. It's like when you had to, do you remember the old, old Peter Pan when you had to clap to keep Tinkerbell alive? (laughs) That sense of you've all got to pretend what isn't true. You've got to have faith in faith. And their faith in faith was that I should just be in charge. And as long as integrity is in the room, that lie doesn't hold. You've probably had to deal with this at work. Kids, you've had to deal with this at school. And everybody's had to deal with it at home at one time or another because all of us slip into loss of integrity, into a hypocritic kind of existence for that day, that moment or someone in our family, or work does. And when you're the good guy, if you're living in integrity in a situation in which there is hypocrisy, here's an interesting thing. You don't have to fail and be holier than thou in your attitude. Don't do that. But even if you don't, you know you're going to be accused of that. Isn't that interesting? Even if you don't fail in that way? Why? That charge will come against you even if you're living with an integrity and honesty and openness that doesn't do the holier-than-the-thou thing. That will be charged against you because hypocrisy has to tear down integrity. Question is why. Let me show you a little bit more about why. Second point, hypocrisy attacks integrity because hypocrisy must prove integrity false in order to survive. Look at verses 21 and 22. So they ask him, teacher, we know you speak rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Hmm. The opening ploy of the leaders with Jesus is flattery. Interesting, their flattery, and it was, was also true. Did you know you can use flattery without lying? For them, it was flattery, hoping hoping to undermine Jesus and his integrity, that he would live from what others say about him. But in fact, what they said was true. It's one of the many reasons you and I love Jesus. We love him and want to be like him because he is not swayed by what other people think. One of the biggest failures I make, and I suspect one of the biggest failures you make, is caring about what other people think in this sense, that you're not content with what God thinks. And so with this flattery, they, they hoped by this volley to put Jesus in a bind like Daniel between God and king. And they knew something. 
integrity would always say what is true. And that made them think, we've got him. There's no way out. What they said is that Jesus teaches rightly. Did you catch that? That's the word ortho in Greek. It's worth saying because we have that word, orthodox. We use it in English. Like hypocrisy, we've adopted it. It's the opposite of hypocrisy, in fact. It is standing straight. It is content with truth, not just speaking truth. They were pushing Jesus toward a cliff, they thought. They thought whatever truth Jesus declared, he would be off message and in trouble with somebody because it seemed to them he had to come down on the side of either, well, God or king. That's what they're going to do. Their, tap, their trap was taxation. It's a popular subject. I just got news from my tax guy that my taxes are done and it wasn't good news. I owe money. The primary tax for Rome was called the ground tax. Essentially, people had to pay one-tenth of all of their grain and a fifth of all their wine and fruit to Rome. Then later, under Cyrenius, a new poll tax was introduced. This is the time of birth of Christ. Do you remember this story? Women from ages 12 to 65, men from 14 to 65 were taxed at a flat rate. They just had to pay it every year. Finally, there was an income tax, 1% on anything they hadn't taxed yet. Actually, that sounds pretty good to us. Those taxes might be a little bit easier than the ones we have to pay. It's a lot of tax, but you should understand this. They weren't, the Jews, so much worried about the tax itself. If you will, that was just money. What bothered them was this. Since Daniel's day and a generation before, they had been in exile. They were physically in Babylon now, then, under Daniel. Now they're in Israel, but they were still in exile. And every time they paid the tax, it was a recognition that we are in exile in our own country, but now under Rome. Worse, Roman taxes had to be paid in a particular coin. The Roman coin, called the denarius. On one side is a picture of Tiberius, Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. That's what it said, and that was the image. It was an offense to the Jew because of the Ten Commandments that he lived under, make no images. And on the reverse side, it said Pontificus Maximus. In other words, this king is your high priest. Because of this, they weren't even supposed to carry it around in their pockets. It gets worse. In Jesus' day, Rome outsourced all of their taxing. That is, Jews, men like Zacchaeus and Levi, could bid on the privilege of charging taxes they then would have to pay whatever they bid. That was their annual fee to Rome and then collect even more on their own. And they themselves, backed by Rome's military. Well, you know what they thought of tax collectors. Interestingly, tax collectors and fishermen and others were on Jesus's apostolic crew. And if you were fishermen, Jesus said of you, hey, you're fishermen? Cool, let's be fishers of men. 
He didn't say to the tax guys like Levi, hey, let's be taxers of men. You know, redeem the fisherman thing, not the tax thing. This is a mess emotionally for people. It was hated. So it was volatile, again, not because of the money, but because of the whole context that they were living in with the taxes. Jesus, they were sure, was about to be off message. He would either defend taxes and lose the people, or he would defend God and get in trouble with Rome. This is a win. Hypocrisy is going to prove that there is no integrity. I want to show you that the answer to our question is not, is not merely that Jesus is going to get the right answer. You already know that. You've read this. You've heard this. You do understand, because of your own life, that hypocrisy needs or suffers, I should say, under integrity like it was kryptonite. It's killing them. But what we're going to see is not merely that Jesus wins, but we're going to find out that he's worth marveling at. He's worth following and giving our life to, that he is the one who will never disappoint us. Though, we're going to see we have to give up our religious hypocrisies to get close. Last idea. So hypocrisy is always shocked every time. Kind of like Wiley Coyote when they lose. Show me a denarius. Look at the text, verse 24. Or 23, he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription is here. They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It's a little bit interesting that they had the denarius in their pocket because as I said before, they weren't supposed to carry them. They had an image that was an offense to the Ten Commandments and a claim that was an offense to their day-to-day lives. He's not a priest. So when he asks them whose image is on it, I suspect he's holding up a coin that was handed to him by the people in the crowd. I suspect he's, he's holding it up so they can see the image of the king. When they said and answered whose image is on it, I wonder if they kind of spat on the ground, Caesar's. Or I wonder if they barely choked it out because they were pretty good at thinking ahead like you're playing a game of chess and they could see they were about to lose. Which was it? I don't know. But then Jesus spoke his famous line, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now before we rush to celebrate, uh, we will, we will. I want you to think about how this worked 
when he was there with the crowd? I don't know. I wasn't there. I'm just reading like you are. But my mind's thinking, how did Jesus do this? I think he did it this way. I think he held the coin up to his face. So to look at this guy, they had to look at this guy. And he says, whose image do you see? I think they were forced to see both images. As the Bible continues to tell Jesus' story in Colossians 1.15, it says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. John 1.14, the Word became flesh. We have seen His glory, and that's the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. I think Jesus is saying without using the words, I am the image of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God. So give to Caesar what you think you should give to Caesar. But give to me what is due to God. And they marveled. Though the ones who set it up marveled in embittered silence. They were shocked. We lost again. Wiley Coyote is falling off the cliff, shocked one more time that Roadrunner beat him. Anybody old enough to know what that is? And so we marvel. We marvel in worship. It is so freeing to follow a courageous hero who is everything he says and more than we've ever dreamed. Still, perhaps there remains a problem here. Maybe some of us here have a catch in our soul. What if as you walk in here today, Jesus is not your hero? What if you have been saying he is, teaching Sunday school maybe, but inside? You're dealing with this reality that if you met him on the street, if you actually came face to face with him, would you actually want to hug him? Or would you need to tear him down? Because the reality that you've been living is different than the front that you've been putting up. I don't know. But I know for some it's true. It's too easy to talk about being a Christian. What do we learn about Guam? 94, was that the number? Percent Christian? Theoretically, I'm... Here's what I want you to know. I want you to know Jesus died for the sin of hypocrisy. There is no sin that is not covered by the cross of Christ. You and I are invited, it's even demanded, that we surrender our religious hypocrisy, if that's what you're holding, give it up. You and I are to jump from the side of the hypocrites and surrender to integrity. It's really the only two choices. Tear it down when it confronts you or surrender to it. That's what Darius did in Daniel's day. That's the end of the Darius story. Do you remember that? 
The hypocrites who attacked Daniel did not want to repent, even when uncovered. There's no word of their repentance. Maybe they didn't have enough time as they themselves were rushed to the den of lions. You know that's how that ended for them. But no word escaping from them. (laughs) Forgive us, we were fools. And yet, a Christian by definition is one who surrenders. Who one who has seen truth and seen inside and said, I give up. (laughs) I want the glory of your integrity. I want to marvel in delight from now to eternity and run deeper and deeper with you with nothing (laughs) in me stopping. And the only one who can take that out, the only one who can forgive it, the only one who can change us is the one who is integrity. And Darius surrendered to that one who is integrity. Now, in order that the world would see Jesus, we are to live like Daniel. Integrity must characterize our lives at all cost, which is not only the cost of our lives, is it? The biggest cost is as still alive, that day by day, he is actually our delight. To give up our idolatry, I raise my hand first. Will we? Delight in him. Marvel at the one who is the hero of the universe, but marveling at him. They became silent in joy or in frustration. Lord, lead us to marvel at the one that we were designed to have our soul satisfied by. In mercy, break us if we are resisting you, if we are laying traps for you, if we don't care about you, if we're trying to avoid you, turning away from the street you're on so our, even our hypocrisy won't have to attack you. We'd rather just ignore you. Any of those, Lord, have mercy on me and on us. Let us marvel at you this morning. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.